Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 441 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interviewed Joel Mason, Michael Bestians, and Alex Ritchie of Black Salt Games and asked them about the design and development of their ocean-bound action-adventure game, Dredge. Dredge has caught the imagination of many people. I was delighted to have Black Salt Games on show to talk about the creation of what is an extraordinary adventure game. You are placed in a small boat, a very small, badly damaged fishing boat, bending for your livelihood and your soul later on. But I'm going to spoil that here, or indeed at any point during the show. We do dance around content, but generally we speak in abstracts about the concepts of the game that are developed by Black Salt Games. It's a fascinating discussion with three fascinating people. So without further ado, let's listen to me from the relatively recent past talk to Black Salt Games about their amazing game, Dredge. Hello, Joel, Alex and Mikey. Hello. Hey there. Hi. Hi. Could you tell us in the order of names I just gave? Who are you and what do you do? Uh, so my name is Joel Mason and I'm the programmer and the writer on Dredge. I'm Alex Ritchie and I'm the lead artist. And I'm Michael or Mikey Bastians and I am the 3D artist and animator on Dredge. Well, yes, mighty talents in front of me because the <laughs> Dredge is a thing and it's, uh, it's certainly caught the imagination of many. So thanks, thanks very much for taking part in the Sausage Factory. appreciate it. So, well, thanks for having us. Uh, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. So, next question. And again, this is all. This one, this one's particularly personal to each of you because it's probably going to be very different. So here we go. Uh, Joe, how did you make your start making video games? And then we go from Alex to Mike. Same question. How did you make your start doing video game creation? Uh, I, I think there was a lot of luck involved in it for me. I was doing computer science at university. 
Um, not exactly sure where I wanted to go in the programming space, but uh, I mean, obviously have played video games all my life. Uh, and I, yeah, I just kind of lucked out. I found a uh, games company that was hiring uh, at a careers fair and I got a job pretty quickly there um, before I had finished my last exams at university. So yeah, pretty lucky. Um, and then I uh, stayed working at that company for about uh, eight years before we split off and founded Black Salt Games. Nice. Alex? Um, I, started, oh, I started trying to make uh, video games in high school in um, like Flash uh, using action script and whatnot. And, um, and then uh, I'd, I'd always been like drawing and doodling. So I, I thought that maybe I wasn't very good at maths or anything. So I didn't, I thought, I thought I wouldn't follow trying to be a programmer or anything like that. So I chased the art aspect and then I went to, um, I went to a uh, polytechnic here and studied that. And then I, I made some connections and eventually um, found my way into the, into the games industry. Um, but yeah, uh, before I, before I was an artist, I kind of wanted to be, I wanted to make, I wanted to program, I think, but um, I wasn't very good at it. So, <laughs> but now I get the chance to do a little bit, a little bit of that in like, you know, a technical art sense. Um, and yeah, I guess that's kind of my, my journey in a nutshell. Yes. Yeah. And on my end, I always had like a pretty big art sort of background, always drawing, growing up and everything. Um, then I came across a game called Age of Empires, and then they had like a map editor and everything like that. So I started making my own sort of little levels in that and just always wishing I could actually make my own sort of game using my own art in it. Then started doing a little bit of mods here and there, just uh, using Microsoft Paint to just paint over some of those extra characters to make my own sort of things. Then when I went into high school, um, was looking to graduate and I was like, oh, well, I want to do something to do with art still anyway. Games would be great, but I don't think there's anything around. I was all geared up to go into architecture. And then on the way to the open day at university, I saw a big billboard that said, oh, uh, media design school. And it's got a whole bunch of stuff for doing games and 3D animation. And I was like, that also sounds pretty cool. And then so I ended up flipping a coin and going to media design school instead of going to um, university to study architecture. And then it's just been on that whole 3D animation and in game path ever since then for the better part of well over a decade, it seems now. Yeah. Wow. Looks like we benefited a great deal from the coin flip. <laughs> I make a lot of major decisions based on coin flip for some reason. Yeah, like even starting off at um, the first company I came down to, I literally flipped the coin of whether I would just up and leave um, the city I was in to move all the way down to the South Island of New Zealand to work at this little small company. And then, yep, ended up making that move. And like, that's been the right call ever since, I reckon. Nice. Some people run around with D20s and do the same thing. Like, I'm not a one. <laughs> I'm not doing this thing. Okay. Next question. Now, this could be a collective answer. As a studio or individually, it's entirely up to you. And it's rather nebulous. But you are creators, so I feel compelled to ask it, which is why I always do. What do you believe are your biggest influences? I mean, for me, every everything that I've ever uh, played, every piece of media that I've ever consumed is an influence in some way. Um, certainly while, while writing some of the scripts for Dredge, I was you know, trying to channel a whole bunch of different uh, tones and vibes from different uh, pieces of media that I liked. 
Um, uh, yeah, it, it's hard to say any any in particular, um, but just just games that sort of have a really strong tone and like a commitment to that tone for me. Um, I, I sort of pick out things like Frostpunk, uh, where you know the, the game is about cold. You know that's that's the main word, and that that tone seeps through even into like the settings menu, uh, where the ice um, uh, crystallizes over the settings menu. Like they have this commitment to that tone, uh, and I think that that's really inspiring, and that's sort of something I try to put into anything that I do. Yeah, as far as like maybe on the game design side of things, it's just I play a lot of different types of games for lots of different reasons. So it's really hard to kind of pinpoint, like Joe said, like an exact sort of like a really good point of reference for inspiration because I just like a lot of things in general. Um, I also draw a lot of inspiration myself from a lot of anime. I am one of those kind of people that just watch a lot of like anime or a lot of different types of TV series and movies, just like anything that seems kind of cool, I'll just check it out just for the sake of it. And I'll usually find a way of finding some kind of inspiration from that. Um, I'm going to try and answer in a general sense, like um, <laughs> in a more general way. I think um, I'm inspired by like uh, small game studios that are kind of like uh, successful and standing and like, you know, doing their own thing and um, are building their own audience and have their kind of identity. But specific, more specifically, like smaller indie studios, not like you know, not like the large ones that are pumping out AAA AAA games. Yeah, it's the it's the little ones that are most inspiring to me. Fantastic, well, wonderful answers. Thank you very very much. It's a difficult question to answer. I appreciate it, but uh, no, nicely done. Speaking of difficult questions, I should have warned you these get worse. There's a mini box. <laughs> so. so here we go. This one is more of an individual one, I think. What video game developer do you admire most and why? I have a, I have a couple, and I, the others may have similar answers. Um, for me, uh, it's Team Cherry for Hollow Knight and uh, Supergiant with everything that they do. Um, you know, just this uh, great quality, really tight experience, um, obviously, Team Cherry have only had Hollow Knight so far, but Supergiant have had a whole bunch of different games uh, that play differently but feel very interconnected. Um, and you sort of, you know, reliably you're going to get something special when you play their games. That's that's definitely something that I aspire to. You want to go? Um, yeah, yeah I've, there's there's so many, but I mean. One that one that's come up recently in a couple uh, chat uh, chats internally that I've I've talked about is um, a person called uh, Raphael Colantonio. I forgot his name right. Um, he was a, a co-founder of um, Arcane Studios, um, and re more recently he's split and made his own a new company called Wolfi St Studios. And I just admire he's he's um, dedicated to making immersive sims. He knows what he wants to do, and uh, he's he sort of like has. He was he was in probably a pretty comfortable position at Arcade, and he decided to shake it up again and start a new studio so that he could make something new with his that the latest game they made, um, which is Weird West. Yeah, I mean, I admire that philosophy that he has. <laughs> yeah, I guess I've got a couple of different studios that I really like. Um, obviously, Supergiant, they're really awesome. Like 
Joel said, like they just got like all their games are like all in the same vein. They got their own sort of identity and it's really awesome. I also love uh, Naughty Dog. I mean, where they started off with, with like the whole Crash Bandicoot. And now they also do like all of the Last of Us sort of things. And then same as like the Uncharted series, which are just great, like cinematic spectacles. And then they're just really awesome to see. And I guess the other one is actually Riot. Um, because I like MOBAs. I will never play League of Legends because I'm Dota through and through. But I love their art <laughs> stuff. And I love the way that they're kind of exploring like small little games and stuff of late. And that's really cool to kind of see. Excellent answers. And yes, yeah, Supergiant, uh, they are a special special crew, aren't they? Um, yeah. Pyre, not often spoken about, but I think yeah. it's quite a special game and uh, infused with very strange characters that uh, ultimately they just made rugby. <laughs> Which they openly admitted when he actually challenged them about it. And I met them a few times. And he made a game about rugby. Yeah, just don't say it too loudly, but yeah, we did. <laughs> so the next question, and again, this is a, a personal one. We might be doing all the same. I don't know. But um, this is a video game podcast, so I kind of have to ask it. What are you playing right now? Um, well, for the last two weeks, I hadn't really been playing anything because it was sort of all hands on deck with, with launch, but I, uh, I've started playing Path of Exile again. Um, I think the, the Diablo 4 beta got me interested in the ARPG space again. Um, but most of the time I'm playing Destiny 2, if in doubt it's Destiny. <laughs> okay. Um, over the last couple of days, I've been playing uh, Vagrant Story, which is a an old PlayStation One RPG. <laughs> that's a that's a weird answer, but um, it's no, true. No, I, I, we were talking in virtual green room earlier. I was playing Unreal, so come on. Yeah. So you know, it doesn't matter. Games are games, whether they're forty years old or forty minutes old. It's games. It's fine. And, yeah, uh, and on my end, uh, every Friday night, I carve that out to play Dota um, with some of my mates and everything as well. So that's the, I don't play it religiously, but just religiously, just on the Friday. Uh, so I always look forward to that. Um, then on the weekends, I tend to play, oh, I'm trying to finish off playing Tales of Arise on the PS5. Um, so that's, I just love watching all the action and the animation and stuff like that. It's a really awesome sort of look and feel to that game. And then whenever I just kind of like feel like I need to just be playing something, I'll always default to like the Total War game. So Warhammer 30 Total War is what I usually play quite a bit of as well. Excellent. Yeah, quite a variety there. Good yeah. stuff. <laughs> Good stuff. Right. Well, that's the end of the first half. You made it. Well done. Nice. So Good. now we're going to go into the second half where we're going to, I'm going to say it, delve deep. Yeah, we're going to do that. It works. Uh, yeah. in, in, into Dredge. So let's do this.
So, before we can delve into Dredge, we need to know what it is. It's unfair on the audience if they don't know. So, have a go. Best of luck. Can you tell <laughs> us what do you think? What you think Dredge is? So, Dredge is a cosmic horror uh, fishing adventure. Uh, which I think is a combination of words that uh, you don't hear very often, uh, but also is a combination of words that kind of make sense if you think about it. Uh, so the game is based around uh, you going out uh, and catching fish and bringing the fish back to town, selling them for money and upgrading your boat so that you can uh, move faster, carry more fish, catch different fish, um, and has a uh, you know an upgrade loop around that. It also focuses around a day-night cycle uh, where everything that you do in the game takes time and progresses that day-night cycle. Um, so you make decisions around how far am I going to go today, how long am I going to spend catching fish, uh, and you want to make those decisions because at night uh, the fog rolls in and things come out and come after you at night. So it is, it is a uh, horror-type game, um, although it is not a hardcore horror game. Yes. I mean, the sense of existential dread is very pervasive throughout Dredge. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a play on words. It's, okay. it's very much more like an atmospheric horror game than yeah. Ju- yeah. just a straight-up horror game. Yeah. Things happen, everyone. Now, I'm not going to spoil anything. In fact, me describing anything the content will be actually quite detrimental to the experience. So I'm going to, I'm going to carefully word these questions, which I'm about to ask the first design one, um, to make sure that nothing really revealed about what happens. Um, trust me, it's the best that you find out for yourself. That's, that's, that's three-fifths of the fun, really. So I want to talk about the, the constant sense of dread in dredge and i found that very quickly i wanted to make i wanted a bigger boat to quote a certain ad-lib line ad-libbed apparently in jaws gonna need a bigger boat and just feel that the desired like you've got a very poor piece of kit here which isn't really yours for reasons (laughs) but um which you then you know deal with but how was that ethos the atmosphere penetrated the rest of the design. You were talking about tone earlier. How have you managed to maintain that through every aspect of that's always been about trying to get the... Because that's what drove me through Dredge, or drives me through when playing Dredge, is wanting to be safer than I currently am. And there's two ways of doing that. First of all, making my boat a more robust thing to actually you know travel around in the second thing is find out what's going on because information is is you know a a means of defense it's the more you know the more you can prepare so i don't want to focus on on that how you manage to infuse that into the game and maintain it so the the tone of of dread which is uh no accident that it's very similar to the name of the game um of dread and sort of un- an unsettling feeling was probably our main design pillar um 
And I'm sure Alex can talk a bit about the way that uh, we infuse that into the art. But um, in the, on the sort of like the text side of things, we, we tried to do that everywhere we could. I mean, every line of dialogue had um, multiple purposes. And one of those purposes was always to make the player feel unsettled if possible. Um, you know, that's from the characters, that's from item descriptions that are sort of over the top in how creepy they are. Um, and the the constriction that you feel around the size of the boat um, uh, it kind of uh, reminds me of the way that Don't Starve do things in that you are never really fully in control. You're never quite comfortable um, with your current situation. You know, you you can get you can feel maybe comfortable during the daytime in Dredge, but you know, oh, I've probably got to go out at night, or I've probably got to across this big expanse of water that I'm a little bit reticent to do. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of ways that we, that we try to infuse that tone. Yeah. And I think another really interesting thing is like, we see people playing it differently from one person to the next. So one person, maybe they feel that I just need to get a bigger, stronger boat where other people, they'll be like, I just need to be able to go out and catch fish and get fast. So I can just do that loop real quickly. So I don't even have to go out at night in the first place. So when we talk to people, like one person's experience of how they dealt with a problem will be completely different to someone else's where they'll be like, I didn't see that. When did you see that? And like, oh, I was insane out in the middle of night. And like, well, why weren't you sleeping at that point? You got that on your own. So trying to cater everything to kind of allow people to kind of deal with those kind of like hazards and obstacles in the way that they want to was kind of really interesting, tricky and great that we managed to pull up, I think, in the end. And and we also tried to um, put a little bit of that uneasiness into the art as well. So the art style is is sort of um, is actually pretty harsh, really, for a cartoony style. Um, there's you know hard edges everywhere, and all the characters are kind of they have sort of warped expressions to an extent, or um, there's something kind of unsettling about them all. Um, and in, in terms of um, like like getting the art style like that was it was kind of a combination of using the the cartoony style and then injecting all these extra harsh elements into it as well as a contrast which kind of made it uh, made the tone I think yeah if that makes sense yeah 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 the fog was a key a key component in it mm. as well you know when when nighttime falls this this really thick fog rolls in. Uh, which at the start of the game is yeah very oppressive. Um, it forms this really tight circle around your boat. Uh, you turn your boat's lights on, and they've not really cut out for it at the start. Um, and the fog acts as quite a large gameplay element to um, confusing the player, um, sort of deliberately trying to get the player lost to create some tense gameplay experiences. Um, and it's only when you really invest into light upgrades that uh, navigating at night becomes a little easier. Well, next question. It's about resources. It sounds like a very dry comment, but I think it informs what you've said earlier about the tone. In that, there are many. There's obvious ones, like money and space on the boat. But there's more subtle ones like time, distance. But the one you haven't spoken about yet, but we have to talk about because it's 
revealed relatively early on and spoken about quite early on is stress and panic and the sense of your own mental health is actually under direct threat as well. The, 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 the ships, you know. And if you go sailing for too long, and trust me, I did push the, the, push the boat out when it comes to going, exploring things. I saw things like... Oh, I'm going to I'm going to go over there and see what happens. What's the worst that could happen? Well. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, the point is, I just want to ask that last resource and also the ethos of having these myriad of resources, some of which, like I said, are more obvious than others. Was this really about, again, maintaining that sense of uh, lack of control on the part of the player, yet they still have agency, but they're, all spinning all those plates and just adding to the anxiety was that all part and parcel of that or was it a happy accident or a mixture of both i I think you've you've definitely picked up on um that those more subtle resources are actually more important um i think a, a player would be forgiven for thinking that money is the most important resource in dredge uh but actually by the end of the game most of the time you're swimming in money um and yeah it is it is time that we consider to be our primary resource um and yeah so uh, time only moves in this game when you move or when you are taking part in the fishing mini game uh so you can sort of park out in the middle of the bay take your time and uh, look around you and visually explore the area um, and yeah, plan your route, figure out where you want to go and catch these next fish, all without the day-night cycle progressing. Um, so yeah, time was very important, uh, and it just it just added yeah that player agency, um, and it it sort of emphasised that exploration style that we wanted. You also mentioned distance, which goes goes hand in hand with speed and time. Um, the placement of islands and island groups is is no accident i mean we uh we measured distances and sort of calculated well at this point in the game a player is likely to have these sorts of engines this um, this sort of speed capability and therefore if they haven't fully prepared and they do go out uh with a very basic engine they're going to get caught in the middle of the ocean in the middle of the night and then we know they're going to have some fun gameplay experiences there. Um, uh, but if they have properly prepared, then they're just about going to make it and they're still going to have a bit of a, a bit of a tense experience. I want to talk about the visual representation, a little bit of the stress and how the eyeball appears. We relate to this question still. But I've got to ask you, Alex and, and Mikey, about how much fun did you have like making the eye of Sauron <laughs> suddenly appear yeah. where you were like, dart, darting around and... And then all of a sudden, the worse it gets, the, the screen starts to really get messed up. Yeah. Like, well, graphics card about to die? I know it's not, but, you know, tell us a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, um, that was fun making that. So, right, um, there was, right from the beginning, there was the option to just make this kind of like a clear meter. <laughs> and we really, we tried our best not to go there. We ended up not doing a meter, which is what we wanted, because we, did, we wanted this to be like a bit more uh, vague. Which is which seems like the right choice for a panic meter is like you can't even actually tell sort of how much danger you are you're in it's you have to interpret it um, 
so it, it was a lot of fun making the different um the different stages of of that eye and how uh more panicked it looks and balancing what a person might how much danger they might think they they're in uh depending on what color it is or how like uh jittery it is or what effects are happening to it we also have an effect that um is there to tell the player when they are um when they are becoming more panicked as well so there's sort of like these this effect that is going into the eye t- telling you that it's like your panic is increasing at this point um but yeah we all kept we kept it all very vague on purpose um and i think that's worked pretty well yeah it was really interesting going through when we were play testing with people and then people were just like what does this thing even mean i don't know what it means and then they're just freaking out about it and then afterwards we'd ask them like well what do you think was happening? And then they just always described exactly what was going wrong with it, but they just couldn't put it into words. And I thought we were like, well, that's perfect then. Whether we're going to call it the the sanity meter, the panic meter, or whatever the heck it was going to be called, it was just like everyone knew that by staying out at night, things get a little bit bad. And then the more freaked out this eye gets, the more bad things are likely to happen to me. And so keeping it vague and letting the people kind of get panicked about seeing things kind of happening on the screen was just like a really good reaction for them because they just were almost just in tune with the kind of panic state of what was going on in the game itself. Speaking of visuals, and this is a question that I'm not sure which one of you will answer this one, but the camera angle and the viewing distance relative to where the boat is, it's quite limited. It's quite close. You can't move out. You can't zoom out. It's just you and rotating around this axis of where the boat is. And how have you found setting that distance? And I appreciate why you've done it. That's a silly question. But I just want to talk through the process of actually, because that distance must have been so difficult to figure out. To the layperson, this sounds a bit odd, but... Um, in fact, I suspect this must have gone through a lot of iterations because you've got it spot on, in my opinion. But really, it's slightly too far away, you'd feel detached from the boat. And too close, you, you felt you have no control because you, you, you're not a master of your own destiny because you don't know where you're going. So how have you found iterating on that? Can you talk us through that process? Yeah, you're right. There, there, were, there were some iterations that went into this. Um, and I think the uh, early on in development, it was a little closer, perhaps. And I think also maybe you couldn't rotate it all the way around. It was more, it was more fixed and more constrained um, and definitely closer. Uh, there was also... So when you, when you enter the fishing phase of the game... Uh, the the camera used to be a side on shot of the boat, uh, but in the in the in the final game it, it ended up being a sort of a top down shot, which was a, a a sort of a deliberate choice to restrict the peripheral vision of players and sort of make you feel a little more claustrophobic. You know, you're focused on the fishing after all. You may not be seeing things that are that are approaching you in the distance um so yeah that was that was a kind of fun thing to play with um but we never wanted to move the camera too far away because as you say it would it would detach you from the player because you are essentially the boat in this game 
yeah i think yeah. it's also on top of that like yeah the whole as time passes when you are in that fishing mode you don't see the day and night passing and of course the benefit of also being at that distance it also allows us to do some cool things with all the culling of things so the game can actually run for optimization purposes and everything as well because there's no loading in the game other than when you first load into it so we have to try and figure out ways of making sure that everything can actually be in the game without actually having to load into a loading screen or anything like that mm. yeah last question then i know all good things come to an end but here we are <laughs> i want to talk about a progression system in dredge and it's um quite interconnected lots of things going on You've got research materials so you have to research things and then once you've researched them then they become available for buying and that kind of thing there's lots of branches and that's just one of them there's many others but that's the one that immediately springs to mind but there's also special abilities which you earn from doing things he says, really, really try not to push this point. But let's just say, you know, if you, if you go down, a, if you if you go down a certain sort of path, you earn these things. Um, how do you reconcile these abilities with the known more organic, shall we say, um, upgrade path? How have you managed to marry the two? Because uh, I'm not going without going to specifics. There's some that are like, oh well, this thing happens and allows you to do a thing that's outside the realms of. I mean, yes, it comes at a cost, but <laughs> um, nonetheless, they are things you can do outside the normal realms of the upgrade path. So I just want to see these are two, and uh, they could potentially be at odds of each other. How did you find marrying the two to make sure they don't? I'm I'm not sure I really consider them uh, the abilities and the upgrades particularly linked. I think I think they they're quite separate. Um, the I guess the the main point around the progression systems as well is that as Mikey said earlier, people approach the game in very different ways. I've seen people sort of reach the end game having hardly upgraded their boat at all um, and, and other people who are still in the first area and have significantly upgraded their vessel. Um, so, so yeah, the, people are always going to attack these progression systems differently depending on if they sort of like grinding for things or if they just like getting on with the story. And that was, that was the main thing for us, which is that these systems should not get in the way of the story, which was a really important aspect of the game to us. There is only, I think, one uh, upgrade that is required to progress the story, and it's not locked by anything else. So, yeah, it was important to, to get those systems... Um, not being roadblocks. Um, the the abilities, on the other hand, were were sort of more tied to the story themselves. The abilities that you unlock for essentially completing each area thematically tie in with the area. So the ability that you get, um, yeah, sort of visually relates to and functionally relates to the stuff that you've been doing in that area. Yeah, and I think with those abilities, we wanted to make sure that you could still use those sort of things in the different areas because um, we didn't want to have one thing like, oh, cool, I've got this one ability, 
but it's only really useful in this one particular area. So I think early on we had a couple other ideas for other abilities, but they were only kind of relevant for that one particular area. And then once you finish that area, you'd never have to use it again. So trying to find a balance of like, what can we give to the player that allows them to do other areas more efficiently and stuff as well, which helped aid that kind of progression. There are some particularly powerful abilities that we you know, deliberately don't give you right up front because they allow players to, um, uh, I'll say, to cheat themselves out of some fun experiences. Um, so yeah, we always make players, you know, take the first big trip across the ocean water by themselves without uh, utilizing some of these other abilities. Um, we've also sort of hidden a few mechanics in these abilities. We've, I mean, we've hidden mechanics everywhere, which I'm, I'm quite proud of. Um, but yeah, so uh, achievement hunters will uh, find that these abilities have sort of dual purposes that help them uh, you know, complete their fish encyclopedia um, or, or do things in a, in a slightly unexpected way. Yeah, uh, I just uh, I just found them complementary, uh, and uh, that's that's quite important. Uh, but like, they are very different. You're right; they're not intrinsically linked, but there's a, they could be argued or it could be um, reasoned out that maybe they are, whether we like it or not. But I think you've openly designed it, so I might say that this is a different aspect of the game, uh, and you, know, you can progress in certain ways. One spatially, the other one's just sort of materially, and uh, there's, a, there's, there's that distance thing again. Yeah, but, um, we could talk for hours about you know different types of fish and how you <laughs> find them. In remind me some a bit to like, oh, this is like Sega bass fishing, where you sort of zoom out and like. <laughs> trying to find the fish and like, oh, I need this tackle for that. We could, but we're not, because I want the players to discover that themselves. So, Dredge, which is developed by Black Salt Games. I have to ask, where's the name come from? Not Dredge, of course, but Black it, Salt Games. Black Salt Games, as far as I can remember, it's sort of a combination of a few things. Uh, we are located in the salt district of our city city it's um uh, four streets and the the letters spell out s-a-l-t uh and then the black i think is is kind of mainly our, our country color we've got the all blacks and and things like that so it's probably a combination of those things mm -hmm. yep. yeah it's a great name great name and uh, of course it's published by team 17 dredge that is and uh, what platforms is it available on, if you could tell us? It is on basically everything. So it's on PC, which is Steam and GOG. And it's on Xbox Series, Xbox One, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, and Nintendo Switch. Wow. All of the things. Um, yeah, to release all at the same time. It's, it's no mean feat. So well done. Well done. Thank you. But, Thanks. Um, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Genuinely has. You've been very open and honest in describing the development of, of Dredge. And uh, we'd love to have you back to talk about what's next brewing in your heads. I'm sure you'll probably start working on it. Um, and that's fine. But um, we will certainly be here to listen to you talk about it. But uh, until then, thank you all very, very much. Thanks for having us. Thank great you. chatting. Yeah, great fun. Thank you. 
You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash cane and rinse for early, extended, and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, caneandrinse.com.